Dear fellow redeemed, we consider especially our gospel reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. And as we begin, um, we're also looking at some of the topics as we work our way through the book, um, seculosity. And I guess I'll, I'll start with a few preparatory comments on that. Um, I guess the first thing is, <laughs> if you haven't read one of these like religious-ish kind of books before, um, the one hint that I've got is if you read it and you get one good idea out of it, then you're doing pretty well. And then the second thing is um, one of the chapters, the, the, the chapter on parenting that he discussed in relation to our topic today was probably the weakest chapter of the book. Um, and from, from my perspective, he could have you know, had some resources, done a little bit more research instead of just painting everything with a broad brush. Um, which there's a little bit of overstatement and and then he made the you know major mistake of always painting the mother as the one who was that he's talking about especially when you know he's a man he should have used himself as an example those are just the comments that I've got about the the book and we'll talk about that more in a little bit because the other person that we have to talk about is is this woman this woman at the well where Jesus John tells us Jesus had to go through Samaria but he didn't not that John is lying he didn't have to go through Samaria the same way that um, if you're driving up to Saginaw you could go that way or you could go that way you could take 75 north and then angle across or you could just take 23 north Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria because the Jewish people and the Samaritans did not intermingle. They didn't talk with each other. They did all they could to avoid each other. They did all they could. And so the Jewish people had this highway. If you're going from Jerusalem in the south up to the north, you would cross the Jordan River, go along the outside of Palestine, and then cross back over when you got to Jewish territory. That was the normal way that people went. And so for Jesus to go through Samaria is a very unusual thing. It's unusual because all the other Jewish people would have been angling off on Highway 75, and here he is staying north on 23, and everybody's shaking their heads. Don't you know the better highway is over here? But Jesus had to go through Samaria. Not because of the, the pathway and the map and the highway system. Not because of um, even any compulsion outside of himself. Any reason outside of himself. But because he knows that he has a conversation that he has to have. He has a conversation with this woman and he has to have this conversation not because, um, not because of his own personal need but because he has her in mind. And as he goes through his public ministry over this course of about three years, during his public ministry, he wants to demonstrate that he is a savior for all people. And as he goes through Samaria, he stops at the well, and his, uh, his disciples go into town to get some food. And there she is. The exact reason why he came. And he sees her, and he, he knows her because he's true God. And he didn't give up anything that God is, anything that God has. Everything that is a characteristic or an attribute of God, a way that we describe God, you could say about Jesus. 
And so even the infant Jesus, he is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. Even the Son of Man, as he is sitting there by the well in Samaria, he is at the same time omnipresent. He is present everywhere because he is also true God, truly God, the Son of God. And so as he, he goes there and he sits, and the discussion begins, and I think this is the point of comparison, the discussion begins and he knows that she's thirsty. Not just because she's standing there with a bucket to get water, but because he knows all the ways in which she has tried to quench that thirst in her life. He understands that she is thirsty. That is to say that she has this, um, this undeniable craving for some sort of satisfaction, this un- inability to recognize even her own participation, perhaps, in where her life has ended up. She is thirsty where she wants, to, she wants to pin the blame somewhere else. Or maybe she just wants to live her life however she sees fit. We don't know the exact details aside from what Jesus Christ himself tells us. That she is thirsty. And he, he tells her that she is thirsty when he says, Well, it's true what you say. I have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. That he knows she is thirsty, and she needs her thirst quenched with something that that well from Jacob cannot quench. She needs something that Gatorade or Powerade would never reach or touch. She needs something that really speaks to, to her life, not just what is most urgent, what is most pressing, what is most attention-grabbing in the moment. And in a sense, that's the entire thesis, the entire topic of this book as well. When we talk about seculosity, the the back cover talks about the the fact that even if, if we would say that religion overall is on the decline, however, being religious is always on the rise. That even if religious attendance is on the decline, and that may be debated depending on who you ask, even if religious attendance is on the decline, people are more religious than ever because people are thirsty. That's the connection. Because people are thirsty, because deep down we know, we have this understanding of of some sort of God's expectation We have this understanding that there's something here that I can't fix. And the way it normally shows up is um, out here. The way it shows up. This woman is at a well all by herself there with Jesus. The whole town knows her, and it's one of those small-town things where if you've only ever lived in a big city, you might think to yourself, wow, small-town life sounds idyllic. You know, everybody knows your name when you go to the grocery store, when you go to the bank, when you go to the restaurant, everybody knows you. But if you've ever lived in a small town, you know the curse of the small town, that everybody knows you, that everybody has their own opinion about you, that they think they know you and they have assigned you, are you on this side of the tracks, that side of the tracks? I remember what you were like in high school, and even though it may be 20, 30, 40 years later, 
I expect that exact same action from you now. Here's this woman trying to walk away from the curse of the small town and still thirsty as ever. Trying to figure out, is it something here? Is it something out there? What do I do? And there sits Jesus. And he sits there and he strikes up a conversation with her, not to simply get a drink of water, which he is asking her for, and that's where it starts, but to diagnose the deeper thirst, the deeper need. The deeper need that, um, not talking about the percentage of our body that is made up of water and our continual need for water, but the deeper need that Jesus alone can satisfy, and only Jesus can satisfy the need for forgiveness, the need for um, some way to quiet the conscience, the need to be able to admit, what have I done? And see that my Savior, that this Jesus, has done everything for me, for you. The need, really, that she needs isn't, um, isn't relationship advice or writing into, I don't know, who is it, Ann Landers or Dear Abby. She doesn't need a little bit of guidance on how to make the new relationship with, um, with this new man, number six in the chain, as Jesus describes it. Um, she doesn't need advice on how to make it better, how to make it work. What she needs is a Jesus who can diagnose what is going on in her heart before it manifests itself in the relationship. And I think that's kind of the point of comparison because when we, if you were following along in the, the reading schedule of this book, the, the two topics that, um, that the chapters talked about were the topic of, of romance and the topic of parenting. And the point of connection between them both is that you and I, in a sense, live in the small town life of small town Samaria. And one way or another, we, we know how we'd like to present ourselves. We know how we'd like people to think of us, and, and um, we know exactly how we think of ourselves. And when we see that things happen either the way that we want them to or perhaps the way that we didn't, we know above all that eventually the problem, the real problem, is out there. What we need is what only God can give. This recognition of the problem here that leads to a confession of reality. Because you realize that, right? That um, when we talk about parenting, the parenting one, I, I called it the weakest chapter of the whole book, and I'll stand by that, at least until I get to the end of the book. But we call it the weakest chapter of the book because he didn't really talk about, talk about talking with your children in confession and absolution. He didn't really talk about um, helping your children to understand life in a way that God describes life that he didn't really talk about what does it mean to find satisfaction in our God? What does it mean to, to teach our children to say, I'm, I'm sorry, and to respond with, I forgive you? Because the point of connection, whether you're talking about the romance section or the parenting section, is that we all, in varying degrees, 
but we easily default back to trying to make sure that I can control what I can control as long as it stays out here. And if it gets a little too close for comfort here, then um, I got to fall back to the path of least resistance. In that question of romance, um, it's basically a question of how do, how do I present myself so that so that my appearance or my relationships match up with what society expects. The chapter on parenting. How do I get around the fact that my child is by nature sinful? And maybe, just maybe, if I raise them properly, maybe, just maybe, then all of my disappointments about my life can be fulfilled when their life doesn't turn out that way. I get it. And if you've ever talked with a child and asked them what they're interested in, or maybe the other question, um, what they want to be when they grow up, you probably have had a similar experience. That each of us is thirsty. And it, that thirst begins not, not out here in the things that we think we can influence and control, not out here in the relationships where we are only half of the party. And that thirst begins with the admission of what's going on inside. And that's why Jesus goes to this woman. Because he needs to address that spiritual thirst first. Not just the admission of guilt. Not just confession as such. Because Jesus already knew everything about her but a confession that leads to an announcement of forgiveness, a confession that leads to absolution. You are correct. What you have said is quite true. And what Jesus is aiming toward, and what he'll get to if you read the rest of the chapter, is that this woman recognized, yes, you are correct, Lord. I confess to you that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. I confess my own fault in, in taking the easy way. I confess my own fault in putting on others all the expectations for where I fell down. I confess that so often my, my understanding of who I am isn't centered in what Jesus has done for me, but in what my neighbor thinks of me. I confess that what I want most of all is on some level, some, some semblance of acceptance, some ability to, to be vulnerable, at least in the tiniest little bit, to be vulnerable with somebody, whether it's with my children as I try to guide them into a better life than I had, or whether it's with somebody in a romantic relationship of some sort, to be able to be vulnerable and to have them accept me in spite of who I am and in spite of what I've done. And maybe that's what the woman was looking for. At the very least, in those chapters of the book, the author, if it doesn't, if you, you don't see your own reflection specifically in those chapters, just wait, your chapter is coming. <laughs> but if you don't see your own reflection specifically in those chapters, um, perhaps it gives you a little bit of insight into what somebody who is a little bit younger than you, perhaps, is facing and trying to deal with, growing up in a world that you did not. And that even though the circumstances may be different, even though dating today might be more one of um, scrolling through the app and swiping, 
rather than um, driving over to the house and asking the father if, um, if he could bring the daughter up for a date. Even though the dating world may look different, and even though the parenting world is far more complex than the, than the, the two options he presented in the parenting chapter, the bottom line is that each of us has this thirst. A thirst to be known and to fear that we are. That each of us has this thirst that can only be answered in confession and absolution. A thirst to be known as we are, to be able to say, well, um, I could have done better here. I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. I fully own my participation in the relationship for good or for ill. But that hope, that wish, that desire to have some sort of human connection, whether it's in a romantic relationship or a parent-child relationship, a connection in such a way that says, this person knows me and loves me anyway. And is it possible? Not completely, but is it possible in the least little degree that the expectations we place on others are really an expectation that belong on God. An expectation that we place on others that has to start with an expectation based on what God has said in his clear word. <laughs> that you and I confess, I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. That you know me, you discern my thoughts from afar, you know when I rise and you know when I lay down. You created my inmost being, all of Psalm 139. And yet, our God, in his, in his love, he showed his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That God didn't shrink back from a full, bare analysis of where we stood with him. And he didn't sugarcoat it, and he didn't say, well, it was just the circumstances, it was the time of your life, maybe you've learned from there, and hopefully it'll be better now. He said, sinner. And he said, sinner, I invite you into my presence, that God demonstrated his own love for us in this, that even when we were still sinners, nothing good within ourselves, God sent his own son, for you and for me. Christ died for us. That Jesus had to go through Samaria because he had to go, he had to come to earth. Not to, not to fulfill, um, fulfill some other standard as if there's some other standard above God. Because God could have been a God of love and let everybody go to hell. But he demonstrated a love and a mercy that is beyond our human ability to understand and comprehend in that he gave us his son anyway. That he saw the reality of where we stand in respect to him and the division that stands among us. And he came. He came in order to wash away your sin and mine so that, so that you and I can stand before him and confess, um, confess all the truth as God knows it. I confess that I've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. And mentally add in everything that we would rather not say out loud. And have our God say, you know what? Of course he knows your sin. He carried it and he forgave it. 
And that's the starting point for all of the relationships, whether it's, um, whether it's the ones that we see, our relationship with different elements of the world around us in the various chapters of the book, or the relationships such as the romantic relationship or the parent-child relationship, that I'm not looking from somebody else to receive from somebody else what God hasn't first given to me. And that as a result, the relationships that he wants, to ha- wants us to have among each other, whether it's, whether it's a family or whether it's a romantic relationship, whatever the case may be, that it, it starts with. And that, that tool for building that relationship is that same tool of confession and absolution. To be able to admit and, in a sense, be vulnerable, if you want to use that word, I did something really dumb and it was wrong. And, and it's like, that's a challenging thing to say, of course. Because you're waiting for the other person, they could just smack you down like a fly ball. You're darn right, that was a stupid move. But to be responded with, I forgive you. And by the way, this is how I have sinned against you that Jesus had to go through Samaria so that you and I would see that Jesus didn't just come for, um, for those who had their life in order on the outside. Jesus didn't just come for those who had the perfect photo album of all the children being with all their, with all their successes in every way. Jesus didn't just come for those who from the outside looked like they had everything together and nothing ever went awry. That Jesus came for you and for me that Jesus came for her so that we would know that we would know his tool his tool for for unity within a congregation his tool for unity within the home is the same tool that he has entrusted to your hands and mine that we talked about in um, page two the, the use of the keys to be able to announce dear Christian you can be vulnerable. You can, you can be clear about what you've said or what you've done or left undone because my Lord, our Lord, has come to quench your thirst. You don't need to be, you don't need to be chasing acceptance. You've got a Savior who has told you everything you've ever done and he has accepted you on the basis of his own blood. And so there is nothing to fear. You have forgiveness, you have life, you have the ability to, to talk with your fellow Christian and, and have a life together, to build a life together. That isn't based on, on performance or outcome, but is based on, I know what my God thinks of me. He's quenched my thirst for acceptance. And he's given to me the tools for a relationship with him and with others. Amen.